It's good to see you. If you don't know me, um, my name is Corey Bendix. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are in week three. I'm going to call it week three of our worship series. Um, and last week, uh, Pastor AJJJ did an amazing job. Um, really, he, he asked a few questions. Um, what will you worship? You worship what you love. And to know him is to worship him. We unlocked this idea of, of discovering what it means to worship this king with our mind, with our heart, with our emotions, with our life. And what, what I, what I want to do is uh, continue in that vein of uh, you are what you love and you worship what you love. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke cha- chapter 7. We're going to be in a familiar text in just a second, but... Um, I'm, I'm going to start us off with a, a quick quote. I'm not going to have you stand for the quote. <laughs> that, never mind. That's not funny. Um, uh, if you know me, I, I'm a quote. Never mind. So this is, this is, this is how I want to start it. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. I want to title this message, The Gymnasium of Christ-Centered Worship. The Gymnasium of Christ-Centered Worship. You know, one of the things that Pastor Tellus says pretty frequently is we are, we are people who prize God's presence. One of the things that I have asked you recently is what happens once we get his presence? Like, what does God want to do in us in those moments? I mean, have you thought about that? Like, what is his agenda? What is his game plan? What is the operation of service in his mind when he gets you into his presence? How do we cooperate with this agenda to form and remake our hearts through a life of worship. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those up, or you can stand as we read uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 35 to 36 to 50. This is God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the house, the Pharisee's house, and reclined at table. And behold, a woman, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment." Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known 
who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, uh, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and he answered, <laughs> that's just stunning. Say it, teacher. Come on, Simon. <laughs> a certain money lender <laughs> had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet, but she wet she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with, with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, thank you. Bless the reading of your word. You may be seated. The year is January 1914. It's January, and it is in Virginia, and there's thick fog, and this thick fog has caused a collision between two ships. The steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant ship Nantucket, causing 41 deaths and the sinking of the Nantucket. Osmond Berry, captain of the Nantucket, Tuckett was arraigned on charges, but it was discovered over the course of time that Captain Edward Johnson of the Monroe, and I quote uh, from the New York Times in 1914, this is what they said, Captain Jones, I'm sorry, Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship, and that is what was custom to the masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. In conclusion, two degrees of deviation due to a lack of calibration. What a story of tragic consequence as a result as a result of misorientation you know the the human heart is like a compass we have a homing device we must have regular habitual intentional recalibration of the heart to be directed to the creator namely true north 
But here's the tragic reality is that the human heart leaks. And as a result, the human heart deviates two degrees. You know, this is really the tragedy of, of the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. In a polytheistic world filled with countless gods, gods of everything, gods of fertility and crops, sun and the moon and so much more. They were shaped and formed by cultural practices that automated a kind of orientation to the world they lived in, sometimes unconsciously. And this began to affect and, and, and reorient their heart and their passions and their longings from the songs of, of Zion to now their hearts were tuned to the songs of Babylon. I mean, like, we, we know what it's like to um, go down the street and we go to um, a mall, also known as, as a temple. This is what I mean. The long and beautiful and um, high ceilings. You've got the worship music in the background. You've got artwork of the good life. No one is, because we're not brains on a stick, no one is trying to talk you into buying something. They're painting a picture. They're orienting your heart towards what they think that you want. And ultimately, if you buy it, you'll get certain things. We, we, we live, we understand that. But just imagine, this is what's going on in the Old Testament setting. It's God's covenant people in a world where their heart is now beginning to deviate two degrees. The question, uh, speaking of this deviation, I love this, this quote. This is James Smith. This is what he says. Because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our heart to a certain end. We learn to love then not primarily by acquiring information, about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the, habit, the habits of how we love. These sorts of practices are pedagogies or teachers of desire, not because they are like, lecture, like lectures that inform us, but because they are rituals that form and direct our affections, our passions, our longings. So the question is, how is God going to create an agenda or is going to create an experience that is habitual, that's consistent, that is going to take God's people and, and reform them or reorient them out of one love and back to his love. Like, what is he going to do to now capture and captivate their heart yet again? What's he going to do? Throughout the Old Testament, we see God creating worship. Worship experiences. And what, what I love about this idea of the gym worship. Love that idea. Now, what, 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 what I mean by that is that God is active, not just present in his people's worship. These, that when you think about worship encounters, we're filled with the divine activity rather than human creativity. So it was about God creating a space 
and then a process and help now walking them through an experience that now was a divine uh, resemblance of the creator in worship. He was imbuing these moments in order to reform them around himself, around himself. God has an agenda in our worship. And when I say this idea of worship, I'm not just talking about songs or I'm talking about, about your life and what you do. Yes, here, but also at your home, at your office, in your car, in the world that you live in. That, that we have this privilege of now navigating life in the form of worship on a daily basis. He, God's got an agenda for that. He, he wanted to form his people, not for them to perform for him. It's this process of our hearts in the presence and in the environment of God being reformed. I love, um, and I'm going to give you a couple of pictures in the Old Testament, but I'm not, don't be overwhelmed. I'm going to survey and fly through them. But one of the experiences that we've heard here recently is one in, in Isaiah 6. And this is a personal encounter with God, but it was worship nonetheless. And, and we find in, in Isaiah 6 that, that with, with Isaiah, he, he, he has a moment where he comes to God in God's character. He recognizes it, and as a result, he adores it. He's floored by it. He's amazed at what he sees. He's overwhelmed by what he sees. But this moment of adoration, it brings him to a space of where the human character must be confessed. His adoration of God leads him directly into the space. It crashes him into confession. He comes to a place of seeing himself and he can't handle what he sees. It's almost like he, he, uh, he just, it's a reaction of confession. But then as soon as he reacts into confession, all of a sudden it pivots again into God's grace being exhibited into this moment of assurance. And then he, he now transitions into thanksgiving, a response of thankful devotion for who God is, and then it pivots again to sending. So let me just bring it into something you can handle. Worship, this agenda that God has in this moment, is adoration, confession, Assurance, thanksgiving, sending. Okay, Corey, that sounds good. What, there are there any additional examples? Okay, there's this, this, the moment on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is a corporate moment. It's the second giving of the law. God is there with Moses, with the people. How is he going to capture and captivate their heart around himself? Adoration, confession, assurance, thanksgiving, sending. A moment where God's people come together with God active in this moment and he gives them himself where there's adoration, but the adoration brings them into an acknowledgement of who they are. They have to confess but it leads them into assurance that we have a faithful God who loves us in spite of ourselves, 
And it results in thanksgiving, leading them to being sent out as God's people, freshly reoriented around the person of Yahweh. Okay, Corey, good example, good example. Anything else? Okay, one, let me give you one more. Leviticus chapter 9. This is a big one. This is where, where God gives a game plan, an OOS as we call it, operation of service, around how the temple is going to occur. Like, what are you going to do in regards to temple worship? And it begins with a recognition of who God is. It's a temple entrance. It's where you have the songs of ascent. And the songs of ascent are all looking to the beauty and the adoration and the amazement and the glory of a God, of a king. That's all it was. Songs of ascent. Songs of ascent, though, lead you into the purification offering. Well, what's that? It's an acknowledgement of who you are. Confession. Now, right after that is the ascension offering. And the ascension offering is, is where it's an, ascent, it's an assurance of pardon combined with thanksgiving. And it concludes with a peace offering. You're, you're sent, heart calibrated around who Yahweh is. Do, do, you, do you, see how, you see how this works? The worship, in the way that God sees worship, worship is a gymnasium. He's active, but he's, he's using it in the Old Testament to form, to shape, to mold, to create a people for himself. But he has a purpose for the worship. It's, it's, it's in order to form us in himself. And, and it all leads, it leads us to, to, to Jesus, to the entrance of the king. The question is, like, when it comes to, to Jesus, like, what is his vision for what worship can produce through himself? Well, I love how he drops a little bomb in Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. When it says with, it, it's a preposition that can be translated from. Just think about this. That we are called and created according to Jesus. He's saying, he's the command. You are to love God from a full heart, a full soul, not a dual soul, not a two-hearted soul, not, not, not a, a, a soul that is, that is pulled into multiple loves, but we are created to love the Lord our God from a full heart, from a full soul, from a full mind and from all of our strength. And you might be asked, well, how? Man, dude, that's too much. Jesus, how are we supposed to do it? Well, this is how Jesus loved his father. Like, do you see how this is the only way worship is possible and the power of worship through the king and the gymnasium by which the son uses worship is to form us in himself to make us who he was. That Jesus loved with a full heart. The, the idea of, of, of a heart is the, the core of a person's identity. Source of their thoughts, their words, their actions. It's the command center of the body. It's the operating system that drives everything. It's the place where your loyalties lie. And Jesus didn't have a dead heart, idolatrous heart, a hardened heart, a divided heart. He had a devoted heart. And he lived from a full soul, 
solace, the idea, but he expresses the emotions and the longings and the desires and the passions. Jesus had a rightly ordered emotional life. He wasn't emotionally mute or suppressed, emotionally repressed, emotionally fickle, emotionally explosive. Your emotions dry, like you just are, you follow your, it's just, he wasn't like that at all. In fact, Jesus was the most emotionally integrated person on the face of the earth. He knew when to laugh right, the right time, to cry at the right time, to yell and and to get angry at the right time, to create whips at the right time. I mean, like this dude from us had a full soul. He lived with from a full mind, the faculty of your perception. He loved God, his father, from his intelligence, but got everything from his father to where he could think about things in the same way his father did. He could think about marriage from a godly perspective. He thought about, about kids and about salvation and about humanity and he thought about the world. He, he, he could, had a full mind as a result of a mind that was fixed on, on his father. He lived from full strength. He lived out of what he had at his disposal. And we're told to be formed. The hope here is that this king wants to form us to be like that. This is the journey. This is the process. This is the messiness of this journey of discipleship. And yet we're given a tool to become like this called worship. Now we come to Luke 7. You might be asking, that's the longest introduction to the face of the earth. Luke 7, the nameless woman. And I love this because this gives us what worship looks like according to Jesus. What we find, the story opens up and it's a woman, woman of the night. I don't know how she knows where Jesus is at. or I don't even, it's, it's a little bit, unique that she even knows where this Pharisee even lives. But she does. And here she comes and she breaks in. And the first thing she, that you see from her is a response of tears. Adoration. This king is all-powerful yet fully present and close. He's all holy yet approachable and tender. When you think about worshiping the king in your quiet time here at service, I am inviting you into a a world of adoration where, where you go beyond the words on the screen and you allow for the king to write himself on your heart. He begins to unlock through his word and through his spirit all that the king is and, and that which we are made to adore and to, and to drink in. Worship is a place where the adoration of Jesus Christ is the fuel of our heart, the, a view of him that's, that, that, that surpasses all of the chaos of our present and we see a king who's, who's both light and life. Like This is this journey of, of adoring this This one man, and in her response, her response was was tears. 
She wasn't crying because she was afraid. She wasn't crying, I don't even think, because she was ashamed. She was crying because she had found him. She had found what she was made for. She had found the hope of being fully alive. And she adored that one. I mean, like, just think about, like, Jesus is a man who is so confident and so strong and yet so tender. This woman who had been abused by men can come and can weep at his feet and feel safe. This is one he adores. She adores. And then, then it says that she let down her hair. A seductive moment. Something that wasn't done in public. And I... I wonder if this was a moment of confession. She was, now here's, let's just be real. We love the adoration piece. Um, We love God's assurance of forgiveness. We hate confession because we don't know how to do it. Here she is, and she comes to a place, and she, she declares she is fully open. I mean, we live in a world of hiding and guarding, and we, and we don't know who we can trust, and so we're just so tight, and as a result, we're so exhausted. And yet, I, it feels like this is one of the most liberating moments of her entire life is a moment where she lets down her hair. I mean, imagine what it would look like for you to let down your hair in front of Jesus. Let down your hair in front of people, in front of, in front of gospel community that are there to partner with you, to see you formed in your worship experience, in the king as you adore him. But as you adore him, you adore him, and then it leads you to a singular place. It's called confession. Love what Brian Chapel says. Human confession is the reflex response of divine encounter. If there really has been no confession in a worship service, then there has been no real apprehension of God. Confession is where we come face to face with the fact that we may not love what we think we love. And you have a tender God who reveals you to you. That's so scary, and yet that's so liberating. You may not love what you think you love, and you know what? That's okay. It's a place of safety, now of of letting down your hair to allow this king to now take your loves, reveal what you really love, and reorient your loves to his love. Um, this past Sunday, I, and I, again, I, I ch- have been challenged with this journey of everything I'm talking about. And I sat here on Sunday and I was, I just said, Lord, will you allow this adoration? Will you allow it, bring it to confession? Bring me to a place where I am so amazed at who you are that I see me and yet I am, I am bringing my, my greatest places of pain and I'm dragging them to your presence. 
as, as, we, as we continue this series of worship, I want to challenge you. I want to invite you, partner with me in these moments of, of corporate worship and individual worship. Allow, allow for the, the beauty of adoration. Allow it to lead you to confession. And then this moment leads us to this declaration that Jesus says. He says this. He says, your sins are forgiven. Assurance. Assurance. And Jesus looks at this woman and declares that she's forgiven and that nothing, no one can take that away. This assurance, it leads her to a response of thanksgiving. She says, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and she cracked it and she broke it and she gave it. When you think about these moments that we have of worship, it's not about our preferences being met in a worship service. It's about, God, what are you doing to use this space and your presence to form something in me that leads me to a place of thanksgiving where now I respond and I want to give you what I value most. And worship services may lead you to, to take your sexuality and say, it's my thanksgiving offering. My dreams of a business, this is my thanksgiving offering. And that's one of the ways in which we as a church, we are trying to form our, our people in Christ-centered worship as we take a moment to give. It's offering. It's, it is now reorienting our heart from self to God in a consistent, repeated, uh, specific opportunity to worship. And God uses that and he forms us. This is a moment for her where she, it's all crashing into Thanksgiving, but then this is what I love. It's, at the end, this is what he says, go in peace. Sending. I mean, just imagine the future self of this woman. Like she's looking at her future and she's going, I am, I feel a thousand pounds lighter, but it's not about what she felt in the moment. It's about now she has come alive. That did not equate perfection, but it, it now it gave her the source that she was going to be able to go back to, to now encounter adoration, leading to confession, producing assurance, driving her to thanksgiving, and now being sent, being sent as a new person. Now, what I love about this, this isn't just worship. This is an embodiment and expression of the gospel itself. That is what worship is designed to do. In Christ, Christ-centered worship, it creates a gymnasium of the gospel being formed in us. I love this. This, this, this is a quote, Brian Chapel. The goal of our worship should not simply be to honor tradition, or naively to assume there are no abiding truths to guide us, but rather to recognize that God has set an agenda for our worship that takes precedence over human tradition or preference. That agenda can have many variations, but it cannot vary from representing the gospel without ultimately doing damage to the church. This is what we're designed to do is have a space that ultimately tells the gospel story. Now, what is fascinating about this story is there is a contrasting character in the story. His name is Simon. 
and you can be in God's, in the presence of Jesus himself. And on one side, you have a nameless woman, an outsider, who is responding and pressing in. And then in Simon, you have someone who's spiritually blind. Jesus says, do you even see her? He's resistant. With Jesus, he goes on and on. You gave me no oil, no water. You, you, you held your resources to yourself because you didn't trust me. You were resistant. And not only resistant, you were accusational. He was, he was in the presence of Jesus and yet everything in him was backing away. He, like even this, the statement, if he was a prophet. This is what Matthew 15, eight and nine says. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice the spatial posture of his heart. It's far from me. So my question is this. I, I've been both. I think we all have. I've been Simon. In moments of worship, God's presence is there, and you're backing off, and you're backing away. Not because you're not comfortable with the experience, but because there's something in you that is resistant, accusational, where you just don't trust the king. And so I look at a sermon like this. The best way to conclude it is to allow for Jesus to form us as a people. And we can find the way that he did that in Luke, Luke chat, chat, chapter 22. It was the final meal. moment where God calls his people to himself to, re, to receive renewal and restoration and reordering. And so I, I, when you walked in, you should have gotten a cup and, and the bread. If you didn't, if you could raise, raise your hands and, our, and the, the ushers will get you one.